Well, it's my privilege to be here with you this morning, and we are continuing our series first, and we're looking at stewardship. Now, the question is, what exactly is stewardship? Well, stewardship is a responsibility delegated from one person to another, coming with authority to discharge responsibility and accountability to do so. What does that mean? It's, it, it's someone entrusting you with, with their stuff and, and asking that you would care for it in a way that they would care for it. That's really what stewardship is. And, and as God created people in his image, he made us stewards, stewards of his creation as well as our time, talent, treasure, and testimony. He entrusts us with these things to handle them in the way that he would. And so Brian started off the series, the series first, by looking at the fact that we should make God our first love. We looked at Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then Pastor Chris last weekend shared with us the importance of making God and his kingdom our highest priority. We looked at Matthew six thirty-three. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So what are we doing this morning? We're going to look at what is at the core. What is at the very heart of us being able to make God our first love and his kingdom our highest priority? And we're going to be doing that by looking at a portion of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. We're going to be digging into a passage from Ephesians. Now, let me give some background here. Ephesus was located in western, what is now western Turkey, six miles from the Aegean Sea. Uh, the name Ephesus means the city of the mother goddess. And it got its name for two reasons. First of all, tradition was that the city was established by female warriors. Secondly, that their guardian was the goddess Artemis. In fact, in Ephesus, during the time that Paul writes this letter, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis. And people came from all over the empire, even outside the empire, as tourists to come and see this temple. And it was a, it was a city that pop, had a population of about 500,000. Now, for us, that seems like a mid-sized city. In Paul's day, that was a large space. I mean, I was like, that's a lot of people to be in a city. And it was a strategic center for, for politics and trade and all types of commerce. What's interesting is Paul stayed in Ephesus on his missionary journey from about AD 53 to 56, who has stayed there almost three years. Now, for us, that doesn't seem like a long period of time, but if you study Paul's missionary journeys, he never stayed anywhere very long. This is by far the longest he stayed in any area. And we find that Paul had a, a deep love for the Ephesian church, great love for the Ephesian people. In fact, in the last message in this series, we're going to look at Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. But Paul's stay in, in, in Ephesus was not without controversy. Something happened. There were artisans there who were making images of this goddess Artemis. And people would come and they would buy them, not necessarily just to worship her, but to take them back as trinkets to show people that they had been to the seven wonder. It was sort of a big tourist thing. And these artisans made a lot of money selling these, these images. A problem was occurring, however. The gospel was spreading through Ephesus. And as people came to Christ, guess what trinkets they stopped buying? Yeah, these images of the goddess Artemis. And so the artisans got upset to say the least and attacked Paul and attacked the church because their livelihood was in jeopardy 
in part because of the gospel. People were coming to Christ. They weren't buying them anymore. And so there was controversy there. In fact, Ephesus was, was for sure not a friendly place, not a friendly place to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul stayed the course, and the church thrived in the city. Interesting enough, it may be because of the controversy that Paul stayed there as long as he did. Some would say, well, why wouldn't you leave if there were controversy? Paul was wired in such a way, it's very possible. He said, man, there's so much controversy here. I better hang around for a few years. <laughs> and the gospel just spread. Paul had, again, a deep love for the church in Ephesus. He writes this letter in about AD 62. So it's, it's not quite 10 years down the road from when he left the place, but it's, it's within that realm. And out of deep love for them, what we're going to look at is his prayer for them. Paul spent time with them. The people he's writing to are either people he led to Christ or, or people he led to Christ had led to Christ. So they're either children or, or grandchildren, spiritually speaking, of Paul. And he's writing, what, what, is, what is Paul's prayer for them? It's, it's really fantastic. Look at Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church and through God's word, his prayer for us. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. First of all, what stands out to me is what he doesn't pray. Interestingly enough, he, he doesn't pray that, that they would be more obedient. He, he doesn't pray that they would have greater faithfulness or doctrinal depth. He doesn't even spread that the gospel would spread. Now, by the way, all these things are important. In, in other parts of, of the letter to, to the Ephesians, we find in the book of Ephesians that he talks about these things, but they're not his prayer for them. His prayer for them, he prays that they would have a strong foundation in Christ and that it's this foundation in Christ that enables and empowers their growth in Christ, allowing them to be the stewards of their time, their talent, their treasure, and testimony that, that God has entrusted to them. In, in other words, other, these other areas, obedience and, and doctrinal depth and, and gospel spreading, all these things are written in Ephesus, but his prayer for them is not primarily about these things, but it's the love of Christ. Paul prays that believers will know how much Jesus loves them. Think about that for a minute. Paul's prayer was, I want you to know, I want you to know how much Jesus loves you. Paul realizes that it's important to not just have the love of Christ, but to really know the love of Christ. Apparently, there's a difference between knowing Jesus' love and knowing Jesus' love. Look, at, look again at verse 19. It literally would read this way if you were to look at it in the Greek. It says, to know the surpassing knowledge, love of Christ. To know the all-surpassing knowledge of Christ. Think about it. Paul is praying that the believers will literally know what cannot be known. That's what he's praying. He's, he's praying with this love of Christ, which is really beyond our comprehension. We'll dig into that in just a minute. But it's really beyond our comprehension that something supernatural will take place so that they can know how much Jesus truly loves them. 
What, what is the biblical understanding of this knowing? Well, knowing in the Bible is not merely cognitive, it's profoundly relational. When we see this word knowing in Scripture, it, it, it usually isn't just a cognitive thing, not just something we know mentally, but something we, we understand relationally. And, and, and for instance, sexual intimacy in the Bible is described as a man knowing his wife. It's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? Now, we're not going to dig into that illustration much this morning. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. all right. So we're going to look at Jonathan Edwards' way of illustrating this. Jonathan Edwards was a, uh, is a famous uh, uh, revivalist of the 1700s. And Edwards explained that you can know the exact chemical makeup of honey or you can taste it. Think about that. Both are ways to know honey, but only taste is the knowledge by which honey is experienced. Now, up on the screen is, is the chemistry of honey. I wanted to present that to you this morning. Isn't that moving you? Isn't that making you hungry? Just reading through that list. I mean, who isn't moved by the fact that, that it has 82% fructose? I mean, I don't know about you, but that just stirs my spirit. I mean, as, as we read down through that list, I mean, look at the two ingredients. It has water and sucrose. It's half fructose. And How many of you in there are scientists? Have, have a clue what it's being written? Yeah, there's about three of you. Great. You, you know exactly what's happening. You're actually the few that are stirred by this, you know? And, but listen to me. When you, when you look at this, you know honey. Cognitively, you're actually knowing honey probably more than you've ever known it before. But it's not relational. Now, have you ever noticed a child's face when they taste something sweet for the first time? Come on now. You can just tell the, the brain, right? It just kicks in. Like, what is this? It's almost a look of excitement and a tad bit of betrayal. Why did I have to wait for this? You know? So what is Paul really praying here in Ephesians 3? Paul is praying that believers would taste the love of Christ. This is a way that the ancient songwriter and King David challenges us. He, he writes in, a, in Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blesses the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's important that we study God's word. We, we know of God through his word. Right, church? Oh, come on, help me a little more than that, or we're not going to get on any further than we are. We know God through his word, right? That's, that's, we learn of him. And so there is a cognitive reality, but we also know God when we walk with the God who inspired the word. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We're challenged to taste and experience the Lord personally. We're called to come to the Lord and walk in his goodness. We're called to taste honey. Taste the Lord. Think of it this way. When I lived in Florida growing up in my high school years, I, I lived 10 minutes from the beach uh, on the Gulf of Mexico, a a except in the winter. And then the snowbirds came down. It was 30 minutes to the beach, to the Gulf of Mexico. But people came from all over the world to view the sunset. People would buy postcards. They would take pictures, still do, right? So they could go back and show family and friends this, this beautiful sunset. What am I getting at? Intellectually knowing God and experiencing God is like the difference between looking at a picture of a Florida sunset and actually sitting on the beach and, and, and having to squint your eyes 
feeling the, the heat of the, of the sun's rays upon you. Uh, actually seeing the colors of the sunsets cascade across the, the gulf. You, you can know a sunset through a picture, but it's not the same of knowing the sunset by experiencing it. Notice what Paul wants for the believers in verse 18. That may we, we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. Strength to comprehend one. Again, to know the love of Christ. What do we come to realize from Paul's prayer? We come to realize that and comprehend that, that he's praying that we would comprehend what, the, what, this, what this breadth and length and depth and, 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 and height is of, of God's love. This, this love that passes all understanding that the love of Christ with its breadth and length and, and height and depth it is so expansive because God is boundless. He's endless and without limits. This is who God is. This is the love that God has for you. It's the love that God has for me. And so Paul's praying for the Ephesian believers and through his word to us that we would know how much Jesus loves us. But he's honest and says, but this love is as is, is expansive as God is. It's a lot to comprehend. He even uses the word strength. Isn't that an interesting word? That they would have the strength to know this. Because I don't know about you, but when I think of who God is and, and him without limits, have you, have you ever just sat and tried to ponder that? And eventually what happens? It's like, Poof! it's so beyond us. And that's why he's using this language. Something supernatural has to happen for us to be able to even comprehend this love. It's like the line from the worship song, how he loves. I love this, this line. It says, we are his portion, and he is our prize. Drawn to redemption by the grace in his eyes. If grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. That's my favorite line of the whole song. If grace is an ocean, the love of God is so, so massive that we're all sinking. And heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss. And my heart turns violently inside of my chest. I don't have time to maintain these regrets. Oh my goodness, there's a lot to say there. I don't have time to maintain these regrets when I think about the way he, what? Loves us. This, this overwhelming picture of the love of God. Here's the reality. We've looked over the past couple of weeks at, at God being our first love and his kingdom being our highest priority, but we can only do those two things if we have a foundation that allows us to embrace the love of Christ. Like you can't force yourself into trusting God enough to make him your first love. You can't just change your to-do list to make sure his priorities are your priorities. Eventually you'll fade away. Without his strength, it's not gonna happen. No, no, no. It's got these things, these, these acts of love and obedience has to come from a heart that understands and embraces God's love for us. See, God loving us is not merely one activity among many. Love really defines who he is most deeply. The love of God is so abundant. Think about it this way. It couldn't be contained in the Godhead. So it's it, it spilled out to create and embrace people, you and me. 
Like his love just, just burst out in creation and, and creating us so we can be in loving relationship with us. Think about it. Uh, our, our growth in Christ and as stewards of our time, our talent, and our testimony will not, will not go any further than our confidence in God's love for us. And so what does Paul pray? He prays for, for the Ephesians and then us through the book of Ephesians. What is he praying? He prays that they would know the love, that we would know the love of Jesus. This love is so expansive that it takes a really, a literal act of God for us to even begin to comprehend it. And if we're to grow in Christ and are being his stewards, then we must embrace God's love for us. Embrace it. I was going to choose the word receive it, but it just didn't seem big enough. Embrace it to me, it seems like we're embracing it, holding on. Let's experience this love. Think about it. God created you to love you. We delight in God only as far as we've tasted his love. I was thinking about this, and I thought about my love for my children and grandchildren. I have three kids. They're all adults now, and two grandkids have been around here. You might have heard a little bit about them. And so I got these three kids and grandkids, and there are times where I've said, especially my adult children, I've said, you know, I love you, and they've said something back, like, you know, I know you do, I love you too. And it's a beautiful moment. But there's no way I can truly communicate how much I love them. Any parents out there? There's just no way. Words can't express it. No act can genuinely show the fullness of how much I love them. And that's for me an imperfect father. Think about God's love for us, how Paul writes it, the breadth and, and length and height and depth, this, this, this love that surpasses knowledge. I think sometimes we hold back with God, not wanting to overstate God's love for us, fearful that we may overstate his love for us. Yet in reality, I think as a dad, if, if, my, if I thought my kids thought that they could overstate my love for them, it would break my heart. I can't overstate it. I can't even overstate it. I can't even state it fully. So I want to encourage us this morning. Let's not break our Heavenly Father's heart. We need to drink up his love. Let his abundant love set our hearts ablaze. And understand that's God's desire for us. To be in relationship with him. To know his love. And all these other things important things are to be built on the foundation of love. In fact, the scripture tells us that even we come to repentance because of God's mercy. Not out of fear, it's his love that draws us to him. It's his love that helps us grow in him. Now, I'm not saying that we, we don't know God through his word. I, I just want to camp there again because it's so important you don't misunderstand me. We do know God through his word. But I ask any of you, how many of you read the scriptures before you became a Christian? A little different after you became a Christian, right? Like you were investigating the things of Christ, or are, are the truth claims in this book true? And, and all that's important. And God probably wooed you to himself through his word. But then when you became a Christian and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, things started to pop in. You're like, oh my goodness, that makes sense. Ever have that aha moment? Oh my goodness. You mean God was in control from the beginning? You mean God loves everybody? You mean even though the world's messed up because of sin, God still keeps his hand on it and there's a place called glory, but we're going to spend with him for eternity? 
So I'm not saying we don't know God intellectually. Certainly we do. I'm just saying that the experiencing God, to really experience him goes, goes beyond that. It's truly embracing him. In fact, we experience God's love as we look to Jesus being filled with the spirit and walking with him. So again, Paul's prayer. But they'll know the love of Christ. This love is so expansive. It takes an act of God, the filling of the Holy Spirit to truly begin to comprehend it. It will have the strength to know the love of God that we would embrace it. But how do we embrace it? We look to Jesus. Being filled by his spirit, we walk with him each and every day. And we trust that he loves us. Now you might say, but how can God love me as messy as I am? Okay, you're looking at me like the last service. Maybe what you'd say is, how can God love the person next to me as messy as they are? Okay? Let's not get too vulnerable this morning in church. How can God love me as messy as I am? I want to pose this to you. Like every time I read this, preparing for this message, my heart was just stirred. It's our messiness that makes Christ's love so awe-inspiring and transforming. Like, I mean, the reality of it is Jesus said it this way. Anyone can love someone who loves them. <laughs> Try loving your enemy. <laughs> and God, looking at our messiness, and I've said this before, if you don't think you're messy, you're probably messier than the rest. <laughs> God, looking at our messiness says, I love you. I love you. You may be sitting here, and this may be what you're saying, but my messed up life shows that God does not love me. Maybe that's where you find yourself. Maybe you're in a difficult season of life. Maybe your whole life seems like a difficult season. Living in this sin-filled world where people's decisions have impact on our lives. Where we're making bad decisions, and sometimes bad decisions have really bad consequences. Maybe it's nothing of your own. Maybe it's something. It doesn't even matter. But you're sitting there saying, man, my life's messed up. If God loved me, it wouldn't look like this. I, with all the love I can muster, gently want to say, your life and mine don't disprove God's love. Your life and mine don't disprove God's love. Christ's life proves it. No matter what we're going through in this, in this fallen world, it doesn't disprove God's love. Christ's life proves it. Paul writes in Romans 5, 8, he says, God shows his love for us, and while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Think about it. God's love belongs to an entirely, God's love belongs to an entirely different category of human, from human love. Totally different. For Christ did not die for the righteous people or those who have done good for him and others, but for sinners. That is for ungodly, unrighteous, living in rebellion against God type of people. You say, who are those? <laughs> That's you and me. That's you and me. That when God saw the sin predicament, he didn't say, I'm just going to start over somewhere else. <laughs> Come on now. He saw us when we were thumbing our nose at him, when we were doing life our own way. And he said, I, I, I love them so much. I love them so much that I'll send my son to die for them. I mean, think about it. God didn't owe us anything. He still doesn't owe us anything, right, church? 
So he's not doing it out of debt. He does it out of love. Jesus, humbling himself, taking upon his divinity, humanity, being born in modest means, living this perfect life, dying on the cross for our sins, being resurrected for our salvation, giving us the gift of his spirit to indwell us, who will never be alone, going to heaven, preparing a place for us, so that that which we crave in the deepest part of our being, glory, he'll come back and take us home. So we look at the world and say, it's messed up. Things are wrong. God says, you get it. You understand. But I have come to bring peace in the midst of chaos, and I will return, Jesus says, to take you to a place where chaos does not reign anymore. That's love. That's love. God's love for us is shown when Christ died on the cross for you and me and everyone else who didn't deserve it. He did it because he loves us. God's love is truly amazing. He loved us before we loved him. He loves us even when we have placed our trust in him and find ourselves being faithless. Ever been there? God, I gave you everything. Well, I gave you everything an hour ago. I took half of it back, but I gave you everything. I, I think of Peter. Jesus is talking to the disciples. He says, you're all going to turn your back on me. And Peter says, not me, Lord. I'm not going to do it. I'll never deny you. And so what does Jesus say? He says, well, you're not going to deny me once, but you're going to deny me three times. <laughs> so you're right. Not just once. You're going to deny me three times. And, and Peter does. He's out in the courtyard when Christ is being tortured and questioned. And, and, and uh, it says a servant girl came up to him and said, you're one of Jesus' followers. And he says, I'm not her. And in one of the gospel translations, he actually uses cr crude language to try, to try to let her be convinced that he's not a follower of Jesus and when the cock crows, which is what Jesus says, by the time the cock crows, you'll die me three times, it says that Peter left weeping bitterly. Can you imagine? Later, Jesus is fast forward. He's, he's resurrected. He's already down on the cross. He's resurrected. There he is with Peter, and he's reinstating Peter. And he asks Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love me. He says, and feed my sheep. In other words, let's move on. <laughs> let's, let's continue to walk together. Funny part of the story has nothing to do with the message, but I have to share because it it's one of the parts that always makes me laugh. He says, what about him? And he's probably referring to John. John is the only apostle that doesn't die of like execution. He dies of old age. And Jesus basically says, don't worry about him. Uh, but you will love me so much, you'll give your life. You know, he's not like downplaying John. He's just simply probably saying to Peter, no, John's going to be okay. He's going to die really old. You're going to die a lot younger because you're going to give your life for me. But the real point is what? Jesus didn't discard Peter. Why? Have you ever felt discarded because you let somebody down? Because Jesus is God. His love is so expansive. I mean, God's love is like a waterfall. Think about it for a minute. And our messiness is like a pebble. I mean, a pebble. A pebble can't slow down like Niagara Falls. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? I'm sure all of us have been to Niagara Falls. I looked this up on the internet, so it has to be true. I mean, every minute, 5.9 million cubic feet of water goes over the crest of the falls. I can't even comprehend that. I just know it's a lot of water, a lot of pressure. Your messiness is like a pebble. I mean, you drop it in there, it doesn't slow it down one bit. Here's the problem, church. 
Here's the problem. We think we have the power to limit God's love when God is all-powerful. It's like, who do we think we are? And so Paul prays what? Oh, may they know the love of Christ. A love that's so expansive that it really takes an act of God for us to comprehend it. God, help them embrace, help us embrace God's love. And how do we do that? What we experience as we look to Jesus filled with the Spirit walking with him. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 8, 38 and 39. One of my favorite, favorite chapters in all of Scripture, Romans 8. It starts off by saying there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's a good word. Talks about the Spirit's work in our life. Talks about the groanings we have of all of creation that Christ would return. Do you see the groanings out there? Feel them yourself? Then Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you hear that? Like, I know it's cold outside. It's still, you know, it's still morning, right? And so maybe, 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 maybe you're a little tired. Maybe we lost an hour of sleep last night. But that's good stuff. Like, that, that should light us on fire. Romans 8, 39, 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor anything present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to what? Separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where it's at. You say, where do we find healing? In that. Where do we find hope? In Christ. Where do we find strength in the midst of the chaos? In Jesus. When we boil down our lives, we realize that it's not our performance, but God's love that is at our core. The high point in our life is not our goodness, but God's love. The true destiny of our life is, is to dive deeper and deeper into the endless love of God, knowing him and making him known. And we grow in Christ and in being his stewards of our time, talent, and treasure as we embrace God's love. So here it is. Paul spends 11 chapters in Romans talking about our need for God talking about how undeserving we are for Christ, but how God's love sends Jesus to die for us and, and that he doesn't just die on the cross, he's a living savior and that the resurrection power, that, that power about Christ back from the dead is the same power that resides in us in Jesus Christ. He spends time talking about the fact that we don't just come to Jesus and receive him as savior and Lord and he says, I'll see you at the end of the line. But every day he's with us and God is in control. He spends 11 chapters talking about these things. And he, he explains them as a brilliant trial lawyer. I mean, he, he, it's, it's amazing, 11 chapters. Then he gets to chapter 12. He answers the question that anyone who reads those 11 chapters would ask. In view of all this stuff, how do I respond? It's like overwhelming. God loves me that much. What is my response? And only after he writes about God's love and loving work on the cross and resurrection does he write. In view of God's mercies, 
Understanding God's love, this profound love he has for us. What else can we do but give ourselves fully to him? You notice he didn't start there. After 11 chapters, he takes us there. Because the foundation is God's love. In verse 2, he says, We're not, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you'll know God's perfect and pleasing will for you. He doesn't start with that. It's 11 chapters. Then he says, okay, let's talk about then what it means to live like a Christian. But before he gets there, he's like, but you got to know his love first. That's the foundation. The prayer. My prayer. Our prayer. Oh God, may we know the love of Christ. This expansive love that's beyond anything that we can really comprehend without God giving us the ability to at least understand part of it. So we can embrace it and walk with him, looking to Jesus, filled with the Spirit, walking with him. I don't know where you are this morning, but if you've yet to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, I just want to encourage you to take that step. But Christian, look at me. Because it's so easy to listen to a message like this and go, it's for them. It's for you. God loves you. God loves you. How much he loves you. Let's pray. Father God, I'm almost at a loss for words and that's unusual for me. But as I look at Paul's prayer here for not just the Ephesian believers, but for us, it's so profound that of all the things he could pray for and he teaches on all these other stuff, but he prays that we would know the love of Christ. We would know it. Yes, that we would know it intellectually, but Lord God, that we would know it experientially. God, I pray. I pray for the person, especially this morning, who's wrestling and wrestling with, you know, how can God love me as messy as I am? How awe-inspiring is it to realize that you love us in spite of our mess? I pray for the person this morning who may be wrestling with the fact that they look at their life and the troubles they're going through, and they say, if God loves me, this wouldn't be happening. And Yet, Lord God, may we be so careful not to define your love for us by what we're going through, but define our love, define your love by what Christ went through for us. Thank you for not just telling us you love us, but showing it by sending your son for Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, being resurrected for our salvation, for the gift of your spirit that indwells us, for the promise that you're preparing a place for us and going to come back and take us home. God, that's where we find healing. That's where we find strength. That's where even in the midst of the chaos, we can have peace. And we thank you, Father, that even in our imperfect walking, your love is still perfected in us. That when we stumble, when we fall, your love does not diminish. You reach out your hand and say, let's get with it again. Let's go on. Let's walk together. God, help us understand the love of Christ. Help us embrace it. Help us walk in it. 
In your precious name we pray. Amen.